This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics, each week Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In today's episode, I visit with Andre Paris. He is a Brazilian compliance consultant. He is the author of the recently released book, Compliance, Ethics, and Transparency as the Way Forward. We visit about the current compliance scene in Brazil, as Andre Paris has experience in corporate risk analysis and management, as well as protecting corporate reputations. He also is an experienced compliance consultant and practitioner and is quite enthusiastic on building a more ethical and transparent business environment. If you're interested in the Brazilian compliance scene, this is the podcast for you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have back with me fan favorite Dave Leefort. Dave is the editor in chief at Compliance Week. And he wrote a, first of all, it was a great column, uh, but uh, more importantly, it was a really interesting column um, about 10 issues that he and Compliance Week are going to be looking at over the next year. So, Dave, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. Although I would argue with the term fan favorite used at the beginning, but I digress. <laughs> They're my fans, not yours. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, so, Dave, what uh, what kind of led you to uh, to write this article? And, and I should probably say that um, typical, or I saw a lot of uh, topics that compliance practitioners might not think of or others are, might not think are compliance to- topics, but you obviously saw a connection to not only the work of Compliance Week, but the greater compliance community. So how did you uh, kind of come up with your list? I did. So I, essentially, I mean, I usually try to stay out of the uh, the political realm, um, but the two, especially over the past year and in looking ahead to 2020, I sort of saw a lot of connections between you know, one, the regulatory environment looking ahead, uh, and also uh, the issues of whistleblowers and antitrust. I mean, everything seemed to have a, a political connection that, you know, really couldn't be avoided in this case. So a lot of the things that I identified um, in my list are do have political connections. And I think that, you know, we'd be crazy to ignore the, the political elephant in the room um, and the compliance world would be crazy to ignore that. Um, and I just think this year in particular will be one, you know, particularly as it's an election year, uh, it'll be one where, um, you know, politics will probably play a, a bigger role in a lot of what uh, practitioners will, a lot of the guidance that practitioners will be getting. I'll say that. Well, let's just take the first one then, because you mentioned it, and that's um, antitrust and big tech. And, and you didn't really limit this to and I trust issues in the United States. You took a much more global view on that. So what, uh, why is everybody or is everybody ganging up on big tech? Right. So, so the reason I took the global view is because, you know, it just might be 
that uh, the, the biggest penalties handed down on these big technology companies, they just might come from Europe. Um, and those are, those are probably going to be uh, GDPR-related related data privacy fines. Um, however, the, the European Commission is also looking at big tech and also uh, you know, imposed big fines this past year on Google, um, and particularly the Android operating system. But so you've got the European Commission with its eye on these technology companies, the U.S. Department of Justice, the attorneys general from nearly every state have their eye on these large technology companies. And it's essentially, you know, it's, it's because the, these companies have these targets on their back because they have sort of the perfect storm of, uh, of these antitrust, uh, of the antitrust eye because they have both, both products and services to sell and run the marketplaces in which they're sold. So that essentially uh, creating a very anti-competitive environment, some could argue. Um, you know, for example, app, you have Apple favoring its own apps in its uh, Apple marketplace Google favoring its own ads uh, instead of its customers' ads. Um, you know, Amazon expanding into the world of web hosting. Um, you know, if uh, you know one one potential idea is is and, and one thing that these technology companies should be looking at and probably are um, is you know maybe stop buying off all of your competitors and maybe stop uh, expanding into all of these new areas. I mean, you had. Facebook in the last few months sort of get uh, pie in their face when they tried to introduce uh, a cryptocurrency in uh, or partner with a cryptocurrency in Libra. Um, and, you you know, you had Congress step in and say, wait a minute, we we don't have a handle on what we're going to do about cryptocurrency yet. And we're sure as hell aren't going to allow Facebook to get in this business. And so th- they sort of had pie in their face there for, for not seeing that coming. Um, uh, but you know, you can say that the, so I, I think in the, looking at the year ahead, uh, I don't see really anything coming of this attempt to, uh, I don't know, for, to regulate these um, big technology companies uh, much stricter or really proceed on breaking them up, uh, so to speak, is because one, you know, it takes a lot of time to do that, as you saw with with IBM back in the day. And the, the sort of the market sort of took care of that on its own. So there's there's a lot of saber rattling, yes, but anything that gets done um, will take a long time. And you know, you could argue that it would be long enough for these tech companies to make some moves of their own uh, to at least create the perception of competition, even if real competition isn't there. I mean, these companies know they're in the crosshairs. Uh, and, you know, you can expect that they would, I mean, you, you know, Facebook isn't about to sell off Instagram. Um, but, you know, they're, they're the, I think the environment of buying up startups right and left, uh, I think they'll, I think they'll tone that down if only because the perception is there that, you know, Washington is watching and Europe is watching. Uh, the world is watching. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so that's, I don't think there'll be, there'll be, a, there'll be much more saber rattling in 2020, but uh, probably not a lot of movement um, except for by the companies themselves. So let's just follow up on the kind of a fairly, I think, strongly connected political point, And that's no, your number two, which is deregulation. 
So um, is that real or is it Memorex? It's, uh, I, I want to say it's a little of both. So uh, after, after he was elected, um, President Trump vowed to cut two regulations for every one that was created. It was a famous line. Uh, and and it, it turns out that uh, he's beaten that projection so far. He's cutting about eight rules for every new one. Um, but the, the most significant change that he made was a partial rollback of, of Dodd-Frank, uh, which exempted some smaller banks from certain rules and, uh, and loosened regulations designed to protect larger banks from the type of collapse that we, have, that we saw in, in 2008. Um, however, um, with Congress now divided, uh, with the uh, Democrats owning the majority in the House and Republicans in the Senate, and with, uh, oh, we yeah, have the impeachment trial we're expecting here in, in 2022. And also, we, we, yeah, right, you can't forget about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the market is still booming, um, which is something that I, I hadn't expected. Um, I think we're unlikely to see further major rollbacks in 2020 unless, you know, the economy starts to take a turn again. Um, and that's, you know, again, because uh, honestly, there are, there's so much more, um, on Congress's plate right now, and so many things that would or that will take precedent over over further rollbacks that would impact the compliance community. Um, and then you look again at Wall Street, and you know uh, it's hard to argue against the "if it ain't broke, don't fix it" model. Although you could also argue that uh, that's what got us in trouble in the first place when these uh, subprime mortgages were being offered and the economy was booming, and all of a sudden. Uh, it all came crashing down at once. So that really leads to your next point, Dave, and that is recession worries. Uh, if 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 we get the big one, or if we get a, a downturn, if we get a something, uh, what's going to be the impact of ethics and compliance? Yeah, I like the I like that if we get a something. So I, I that's actually what I, I expect we'll get a something. I mean, I, I you know with this this these strong economic times for these large companies. Uh, you've seen more, you know, that that's helped compliance, more resources toward environmental sustainability efforts, employee training and engagement, uh, just more robust programs in general. Um, if things go south, there'll be a lot more attention on the bottom line. Um, and all these robust programs, all of a sudden, you know, they might not get their funding. And then the other thing that uh, that you have to think about if, uh, if the economy goes south and the bottom line becomes that much more important is the uh, companies and executives will, they during these times in the past anyway, history has told us that executives will play things much closer to the vest. The economic reporting will be get a bit murkier and shortcuts will get taken. We've seen it in the past um, in order to preserve that bottom line. So I guess what I was, the point I was trying to make there is that ethics oftentimes is the first thing out the window in a downturn. And it can't be. You can't, you can't stop investing in compliance during times like this. But it often is the first thing. Uh, so it, that, that ascent, I included that essentially as uh, almost, almost as like a, a warning sign. Like, I hope, I hope we don't see this. But if the market does go south and all of a sudden the bottom line gets stressed even more, uh, by these large companies, um, don't be surprised if you see an uptick in some of the uh, cultural failures that we've seen in the past. So next up, uh, you pretty much hit it directly right on the head, the uh, 2020 elections. 
Uh, lots to unpack around this, but what are what are some of the angles you see or you anticipate perhaps seeing from the ethics and compliance uh, perspective? The ethics and compliance perspective here is essentially, you know, if uh, if there is, let's just say, things go one way or the other, it's going to impact the compliance environment greatly. That now, for example, if if Donald Trump is reelected. And let's say uh, the Republicans keep the Senate and then the Republicans control the House. I think what we'll see moving forward over the next, I don't know, I think now we're looking into 2021, it's 2022, is that these, especially some of these Dodd-Frank regulations, let's say, uh, you know, the reason why Republicans are reelected is because the economy is still booming, the Dow is still climbing, uh, and that's the reason that, you know, they keep win, they'll win the elections. Let's just use that as an example. Uh, I think we can expect more Dodd-Frank rollbacks, more, more of the protections that were put in place after the lessons learned of the last economic uh, recession. Uh, I think we'll see a lot of those protections, you know, continue to be rolled back. Now, things could also go the other way. Let's, let's just say, now, I don't expect Trump to lose a trial in the Senate. Let's just, let's. I'll say that flat out now. Um, but let's just say the election comes and a Democrat is elected uh, into office. And let's just say, the, let's say the Democrats keep the, keep the House and the Republicans keep the Senate. Then I think you'll see uh, at least more, uh, more attention paid to some of the rollbacks that have taken place and perhaps a reconsideration um, of some of that. Because honestly, you know, where, while the impact of uh, the some of the rollbacks that happened in 2018 really haven't been felt too hard by compliance, uh, I think that, um, in other words, things could have been worse. Uh, and if and if things go the way the Republicans want it to go, they would continue down that road. If they go the other way, then I think you'll see more uh, safeguards and protections uh, returned. So um, the next topic is whistleblowers. And this really goes back a couple of years to a U.S. Supreme Court case, Digital Realty Trust, which gutted the whistleblower protection under Dodd-Frank. There have been two uh, or a House and Senate um, bills to remedy this uh, have been uh, passed in the House, introduced in the Senate. Um, but, uh, so that's kind of one area. The second area though is, and I'm really glad you raised this point because this is the one that's concerned me. If, uh, Trump's public berating of the impeachment, uh, impeachment process specifically around the whistleblower, will it embolden companies to start attacking whistleblowers? Will it embolden others? Uh, we've already seen instances where at least, Anecdotally, for uh, government officials or government workers are afraid to go, go come forward now. Uh, is that going to move into the private sector, and how will that play out? Well, I hope it doesn't, but I think Trump has set a dangerous precedent here. Um, whistleblowing traditionally has enjoyed uh, bipartisan support. Uh, however, um, my perception is that Trump has sort of made this a reflexively partisan issue by calling out the impeachment whistleblower by sort of trying to discredit the whistleblower. These are things that whistleblowers need protection. If it wasn't for whistleblowers, 
corruption at companies like Enron, Wells Fargo, Theranos, Cambridge Analytica, I, the list goes on and on and on. These might have never been uncovered if not for the whistleblower and whistleblowers feeling that they can come forward without the threat of retaliation. Yet when the most powerful person in the world blatantly comes out on Twitter, the most public of forums, and uh, sort of almost almost makes light of the whistleblower and says we need we need to not only not only calling into credit calling into discredit the reputation of the whistleblower, but whistleblowers in general. I think when it when it has that type of high profile um, that type of high profile case of sort of belittling almost belittling the role of the whistleblower, even if there are even if companies do have protections in place. You know, whistle. You can't help but think that this is going to have an impact on on corporate America. And when I was doing some research for um, for this story, there was it was a um, uh, ECI uh, had a global benchmark uh, on workplace and ethics report. Um, they had a survey where forty four percent of those who reported corruption in the workplace experienced retaliation. So, in this 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 was take this survey uh, was conducted before the impeachment whistleblower step forward. So I, I think that um, Trump has set a very dangerous precedent here that I hope does not translate to the corporate world, but I, I fear uh, that it will. So one of the biggest issues starting January 1 has again become data privacy. And, and I say January 1 because that's when the CCPA became effective. Do you see that as really changing the data privacy equation or that and other things? So I think I think it will, um, but I think it'll be. I think I don't think it'll be this year. So so the way I see it is, data privacy now is enjoying sort of the the perfect storm uh, for compliance. So consumers, one, they're starting to grasp the the volume of data that companies have on them and the value of that data. Uh, consumers expect that companies that hold their data to be transparent about what data they hold why they're holding it, how they're protecting it, how they're benefiting from, from it. And you're trying and you're starting to see companies like Apple, for example, and even Google now trying to get ahead of that um, and advertising even that or, or sending uh, in their in their messaging directly to consumers that, hey, privacy, your privacy is important to us. Um, so it's, it's sort of sort of an epiphany on both fronts and. And regulators seem to be having that same epiphany in the sense that, at least on the state level, uh, they're developing regulations that hold companies accountable for the data that they hold on people. Um, this first started, obviously, in Europe with the uh, General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR. That's been enforced now for more than 18 months. Uh, and then the first modern side state law that you referred to, the California Consumer Privacy Act, went into effect uh, January 1st. Um, you see countries like Turkey uh, and Brazil start to have to take data privacy seriously, um, India as well. Um, so in one sense, this is it means companies, they, they better have their house in order um, when it comes to data. But what we're seeing, is, especially with the CCPA, is I think the, the messaging from the California Attorney General is that is such that if you demonstrate a uh, if you demonstrate a good faith effort to comply, you will be given guidance instead of uh, penalties, at least at first. 
And I think you'll see a lot of companies test this one. Um, they'll, they'll show, uh, they'll show efforts to be compliant, but you know, they, they, they'll also try to see, uh, they'll test, they'll test it a little bit. They'll, they'll see just how far up to the line they can walk. Um, and we'll see, you know, it, it's up to, you know, the enforcement isn't going to, to really start until later this summer when I'm talking about CCPA now. Um, so we'll see just how enforceable this is. Um, and see whether you know this is going to be played out in court, or if if this is going to be something that uh, you know uh, if 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 California is going to to really try and strong arm some of these major technology companies that are uh, headquartered in California and get a lot of their revenue from California residents, um, we'll see if they strong arm if they play the role of strong arm, or if it's if it's sort of um, you know a toothless regulation. One of the questions I'm asked quite often is, will there be a national response to this? Meaning, can Congress pass any national data privacy legislation? And it usually comes from people in corporations because they're worried about being subject to 50 different state laws on this. Uh, I generally say, um, exactly. I don't think this Congress can do anything, let alone something as uh, substantive as a, a data privacy, data protection law. Nope. Uh, you have any thoughts on that one way or the other? No, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I think it's it's funny when you when you see companies like Apple and Google step forward and say, "Yes, yes, give us a give us a national data privacy law. We need to be regulated." And uh, the funny thing is, they they're saying that because of what you just what you just indicated. They don't want to have to follow fifty different sets of rules based you know depending on if if you know because the states are much more proactive. And able to get things done a lot quicker than the than the federal government has has shown to be. Um, so they don't want to have to follow these different sets of rules. They want one set of rules. They know it's coming. They know rules are coming, and they they only want to follow one set of rules. So it's interesting that they're that they're you know quote unquote being proactive uh, about asking for this regulation. But but you're right. We're not going to see that. At least not this year. Congress has too much on its plate right now. Um, and any kind of data privacy regulation is, it's not going to happen in this Congress. Um, it may be, it's the next Congress. I'm not sure. It may be, it maybe it depends on what happens, uh, with some of these state laws that once we see more of them start to roll out, like I think this year we might see Colorado pass a law or Washington or Maine, um, or any of the other states that are, are currently, uh, it's in committee, I think in a few other states. So. Um, the states are being proactive. Uh, the federal government so far uh, has not been. Uh, next up is uh, regulators and uh, their uh, rewarding of good faith efforts. It seemed to me you suggested, uh, you, you at least, uh, one interpretation was this was a softening of enforcement. I, uh, In my mind, it was uh, perhaps a refocus. But uh, do you see mm-hmm. this continuing or we saw a lot of commentary from uh, the Department of Justice and OFAC last year? Uh, where do you see this, or at least what are you going to be watching? Perhaps is the fairer question. Yeah, so it's it's more it's more of what, what I'll be watching is is so you're right. I mean the the updates to the evaluation of corporate compliance program essentially was you know outlining uh, what prosecutors will be looking for. So so one, they're explicitly telling companies, hey, this is this is what we're looking for in determining whether a company will be punished. So, I mean, they're giving companies the answers to the test almost. Like, did, did the company self-report? Is it cooperating with authorities? 
Uh, is the compliance program well designed? So, so they're, they're in, in a sense, they're rewarding efforts instead of results. So for a mature compliance program and for mature regulations, I don't know if that is, uh, the best approach, but for things like, um, these new data privacy regs, uh, where companies, you know, essentially these are new to companies. So, they do need a lot of guidance and they do need the, uh, you know, the, the, some leniency when it comes to making good faith efforts. Um, but for some of the mature, most more mature regs, I don't know if that, um, I don't know if that's the best policy. I think it's the policy that we're getting, at least from, from this administration. Um, but I, I, I would argue that it might not be the best message to be sending to corporations at this time. So I'm always intrigued when uh, people raise the issue of ethics and artificial intelligence, because I always have the same question. Did I miss the memo that Skynet has become self-aware? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. AI is a, AI is a game changer. I mean, it's, there, there is no doubt that a, that companies are, companies are already using AI and it's only going to get more, um, I won't use the term invasive, but but it really is more invasive in our everyday lives. And if if there isn't a uh, ethics by design sort of out uh, sort of attitude at the outset, in other words, compliance and ethics needs to have a seat at the table from the very outset. So this can't be a situation where. Um, uh, there, there were a few AI tests. I think it was in, in one of the one of the states in the South where um, uh, there were abuses. I think so. There was a system designed to select pris- prisoners for parole, and I forget what state it's in. It wasn't, um, and it was a test program. And it, the AI, uh, the algorithm, proved to have racial biases. So there are many instances like that, but there are also there are also safety considerations here. When we're talking about, you know, looking two, three, five years down the road, um, entire fleets of trucks and truck drivers could be out of work, replaced by AI, self-driving trucks, self-driving vehicles. These things are coming. So, and, and, and as these things are being developed, there needs to be a, uh, a seat at the table for someone who has safety, ethics, and uh, compliance in mind, because if not, then the decision makers who have profits in mind, who have the bottom line in mind, they will be making the decisions. And, and if those the if those are the only voices that are heard in this discussion, then that's a big problem, because this this technology is developing faster than the regulations to uh, to safeguard it are being developed. So it is up to the business community and specifically the compliance function to ensure transparency, accountability, and that ethics by design approach. If not, there will be companies, and it might be in the year ahead, it might not be for another couple of years, that will find themselves in hot water and there will be case studies written about them because they put business priorities ahead of ethics when it comes to AI. Uh, And those will be the examples that ultimately inspire action from these slow reacting lawmakers and regulators. So if companies don't get ahead of this by making sure there is an ethics by design um, mindset, uh, then uh, these then things will go. Well. We'll we'll have a Skynet situation. I'm confident. 
but um, it, it'll be, it'll be much, less, much less dramatic than that. Uh, but uh, there will be trouble. Well, maybe somebody will build Skynet. Uh, <laughs> so, Dave, I was really intrigued on your point number 10, uh, which was supply chains, geopolitical risk, and third parties. And you raised or posed the question, at least, if these are such a big problem, where are the resources to fix it? And what intrigued me was really parts two and three. Uh, third parties have been on the FCPA radar for 20 years. Uh, and I think everyone has at least heard of the memo about third parties. Uh, so uh, if if it's been in the public consciousness or the compliance consciousness for so long, why is it still? Uh, number two, I was very intrigued by your uh, thoughts on geopolitical risk because I see that as a huge risk. But you've added supply chain. So I was wondering if you might just sort of tie those three together or uh, are you going to be looking at them individually? What are you thinking on that one? So the reason why I group these three together, because I do think that they're all tied together, because we're, we live in a global economy. No one does business in just one company or one area of the world anymore. These companies' supply chains extend, you know, we, in some of the survey work that we do, we find that when we ask companies, uh, how many third parties do you work with? A lot of them are answering, you know, 500, 1,000. More than 5,000. And to me, that's just astounding in how do you keep track of it all. And when you're talking about third parties, you're talking about uh, links in the supply chain. And when you deal with third parties, you cannot ignore the geopolitical risk in, in sort of risky areas of the world or areas of the world where uh, either there are tariffs or sanctions or there is a climate where uh, bribery and corruption are run amok. Um, and these these are things that uh, if you if you're if you're a company doing business in these countries and you're working with a third party, you know it is in your third party. You know, let's say pays a bribe or pays you know what they think are dues to the government, but essentially is a bribe. Uh, it's going to be your company that is in the crosshairs and gets uh, and gets punished for it. There was there was a, a Deloitte survey recently. That said, seventy percent of organizations believes they are underinvested in third-party risk management. Um, how do you keep track of it all, especially when you know eighty percent of all FCPA enforcement actions involve uh, a third party? Um, so, you know, and, and to add to that, I'll, I'll add the the anecdotal evidence that uh, Compliance Week we have uh, we now have two conferences. We used to have one conference on third-party risk. We've now had to expand that to because one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, because there's been so much demand for guidance here from practitioners. They're, they're essentially calling for help. They need help in managing this. Uh, and, you know, and like I said, 70% of organizations said they're un- underinvested in third-party risk management. So, I mean, I mean, Boards of directors and executives and C-suites, there, there needs to be more of an investment here. Um, this is a big risk that is being underestimated by companies. Um, uh, you know, companies can't catch everything, but they can do better uh, and they need to do better, especially in this environment where, you know, individuals are being sanctioned more than ever. Countries are being sanctioned. Uh, tariffs in with this with this uh, latest um, with the regime in place uh, in the United States tariffs are are a big issue. I know the U.S. and China just 
signed phase one of a, uh, I guess, sort of a, a rollback, I guess, of some of the tariffs. But um, th- these are all issues that companies need to to keep in mind um, as they're as they're doing business in in certain areas of the world, in, in particular risky areas of the world, um, where uh, supply chain costs are obviously a lot less than there are in, in the United States. Um, so essentially, I just wanted to call attention to this as uh, this is an area where compliance as a function is calling for help, uh, and it needs to be answered. It's a really fascinating list you've put together. Uh, the piece is entitled 10 Things We'll Be Talking About in 2020. It's on the uh, Compliance Week website. I would certainly encourage everybody to uh, check it out. We're going to link to it in the show notes, and we're also going to put a discount code uh, for uh, joining Compliance Week or at least subscribing to it that Dave's uh, graciously given us. Dave, thanks so much for taking the time to visit with me on your great piece. Thank you. Appreciate it, Tom. Thanks a lot. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Uh, We have linked to Dave's article in the show notes. Additionally, Compliance Week has authorized a discount for its one-year membership, uh, and that information is also in the show notes. Finally, finally, Compliance Week 2020 will be held from May 17 to 20 at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C. It's one of the year's annual top compliance and ethics conferences. I would certainly hope you can plan to join me. I'm going to speak at the event. Uh, and join uh, some great speakers. I've linked to registration and information in the show notes. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you'll join me again next week. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.